Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is a little shout out before we get into today's show. Please think about Perion to support all the shows in the District of Wonders. As you know, we are now a paying market and we need to keep afloat. The most important thing is to keep going. Please pop over to Patreon. Any little amount will, will certainly help keep these shows going. A regular subscription on Patreon is just the way forward to make sure we can put out these shows weekly, pay the writers and just keep going well into the future. We've been going 10 years there now, Thanks to all your loyal support. Please keep it up and pop over to Patreon. Good evening, children of the night. I wrapped up reading M.R. Carey's Fellside. I really did like it. With the consideration that it's set in a prison, there is quite a violent side to it, but the element that puts it in our genre of horror is the ghosts. It has a bit of a twist towards the end that I enjoyed, and the story wrapped up well. I would have to say that if you're looking for a book that will make it difficult for you to sleep at night, this one might not be it. Not a lot of bumps and jumps or that lingering sense of dread that you just can't put your finger on. Check it out. It's worth a read. On a more serious note, I did want to mention a bit about our plans going forward with the District of Wonders move towards paying authors and advertisements and where they intersect. A couple weeks ago, I had a brief exchange with our listener, Sharon Carlton, on Facebook. She pointed out that the advertisement placement in episode 253... It was placed at a point where how ACAS injected the advertisement, it was jarring. That's, that's true. For the next roughly dozen episodes, we're going to be lengthy as we move fairly aggressively through the last few chapters of our thankfully dwindling back catalog of stories and position ourselves to our next metamorphosis, which will likely be a single story from an author who will receive financial compensation. Where these two threads intersect 
is that where we tell Acast where they are allowed to put advertisements is incredibly easy if we have two stories. Put it in the middle of the two. But if we have a single, longer story, it becomes a bit more tricky. Moving forward, we will be asking authors to suggest where they would like that marker to go. Sharon had made the suggestion of adding a bit of buffer between the story and the advertisement, and then the resumed story. That's how we will be doing it going forward. It will probably be a bit of music, similar or the same as what we do between me speaking and the stories currently. I'd initially opposed that idea because ACAST doesn't always give us advertisements, and I thought it seemed silly to have a strange bit of music smack in the middle of a story. But I think I was wrong to feel that way because it's certainly more disruptive to have an advertisement smash down suddenly into a story. So, if you hear a bit of music in the middle of the story for seemingly no reason, that's why. But that won't be happening tonight, because we've got two stories, and just before we get to them, children of the night, a reminder. Submissions will be opening up in just a few days. Our first story of the evening comes to us from Adam Millard, the author of 20 novels, 10 novellas, and more than 100 short stories, which can be found in various collections and anthologies. Probably best known for his post-apocalyptic fiction, Adam also writes fantasy-slash-horror for children. He created the character Peter Crombie, Teenage Zombie, just so he had something decent to read to his son at bedtime. Adam also writes bizarro fiction for several publishers, who enjoys his tales of flesh-eating clown beetles and rabies-infected derrieres so much that they keep printing them. His dead series has recently been the filling in a Stephen King Bram Stoker sandwich on Amazon's bestsellers chart. Adam writes and edits for UK horror website This Is Horror, whose columnists include B.C. Furtney, Simon Bestwick, and Simon Marshall-Jones. Here comes Adam Millard's Lucan. The plumber's arms was half empty when the woman barged through the door. Her head dripped with fresh blood and her eyes were bulging from their sockets. She looked genuinely terrified, enough to silence the mediocre revelry that had been taking place within the pub. The pianist at the edge of the room stopped playing as all eyes fell on the frenzied woman, Lady Lucan, Veronica to those who weren't aware of her title or those close enough to have the privilege of calling her by her first name alone. She was wearing what appeared to be a nightdress, and it was peppered with spots of blood, which glistened beneath the pub's lights. Help me, help me, help me! She screeched, her face contorted into an expression of the purest fear. He's in my house! He's killed my nanny! The drinkers, mainly men, offered each other cursory glances, as if the woman had lost her mind. One of them, Daniel Abram, stood from his table, where he had been drinking alone, and he rushed across to the petrified lady. The rest of the room seemed to forget all about her, turning back to their drinks, lighting pipes as if nothing extraordinary had just happened. The pianist began to tinkle away once again, a cheerful tune that was quite inconsiderate given the circumstances. Lady Lucan glanced around the room, unable to comprehend why people were not rushing to her assistance. Were these men so brutish that they could simply stand by and ignore a woman's pleas? 
She felt something on her arm, a hand, and she looked into the man's eyes. A long, dark beard covered the lower part of his face, but his eyes were kind. Everything will be all right. Everything will be okay, the man told her. He introduced himself, told her that he would return to the house with her after calling the police. You don't understand, Lady Lucan said. He's crazy. I saw what he did to her, the nanny. I saw what he's capable of. He'll kill us both. Daniel Abraham was no longer listening. He asked the bartender, a jovial little fat man by the name of Geoffrey Tanner, if he could use the telephone to call the police. The bartender told him he could, and so he proceeded to do so. From the edge of the room, still dripping with blood, Lady Lucan stood, shaking her head, her eyes darting around as if she could see things that weren't there. A few of the punters stared at her, as if it was she that was crazy, and not whoever she was referring to. She wanted to get out of there, as soon as possible, but the last place she wanted to return to was the house, where her ex-husband had just murdered the nanny, tore her apart as if she was nothing but a piece of venison. The thoughts brought bile to her throat, and she felt her knees give way beneath her. The man, Daniel Abraham, returned from the telephone just in time to catch her. She would have landed quite painfully on the pub floorboards had he not. Steady now, he said, helping her to her feet and holding her at arm's length as if she was liable to explode, or implode, at any given moment. "'Take her outside,' Geoffrey said, not because he was concerned for her, or thought the fresh air might do her some good, but because he no longer wanted such a lunatic putting the punters off their ale. Daniel walked with her, slowly, towards the entrance. "'He ripped her apart with his teeth!' she told him, as they stumbled unsteadily out into the darkness of the night. I saw everything, and there was nothing I could do to stop it. It's going to be okay, Daniel said, struggling to maintain his grip on her frail figure. The police have been notified and are on their way. We should wait here until they arrive. She nodded, and then a look of complete shock washed over her. The children! she screeched. I can't believe I forgot. The children are still in bed. Daniel could barely understand what she was saying. Such was her pitch. How many children, he asked, thinking he heard well enough to fathom roughly what she was going on about. Th three, she said. Francis, George and Camilla, and he knows where they sleep. He'll go after them. Please. We can't wait for the police. Will you get my children out of there? A quick pint after work had seemed like a good idea at the time, but now he found himself embroiled in some kind of murderous plot, something that he normally read about or watched on the television late at night. Where do you live? he asked the delirious woman. As soon as the question passed his lips, he regretted it, for now he had accepted responsibility. The fate of this poor woman's children lay firmly in his hands now. He thought about re-entering the pub and asking for assistance, but he'd seen how they had reacted and knew it would prove fruitless. Lower Belgrave Street, she said, pulling him across the road. It's only at the end of this road. Please, the children. Daniel ceased resisting, 
and they made their way to the house where allegedly the woman's husband had murdered the nanny. And, this was the part that Daniel was finding difficult to understand, begun to eat her. This is London, he thought. People don't eat each other in London. They stopped just in front of a four-story building. Black railings led up to the front door, which was slightly ajar. It was then that Daniel realised that he was completely unarmed and at the risk of joining the nanny in the afterlife. Maybe he's gone, Daniel said, hopeful that he might be correct. Lady Lucan shook her head and pointed a slender, tremulous finger towards the building. In the distance, distant enough to not warrant waiting for, the sirens howled through the night. They might have been fire engines, for all Daniel and the lady knew. I want you to wait here, Daniel told her, stroking her arm as if she was a mental patient and he was one of the friendlier orderlies. I'll bring the children down to you. It didn't sound like a lie when he said it, but the chances of the children still being alive or in the house were quite slim, and he knew it better than anyone. Lady Lucan opened and shut her mouth as if to object, but no sound came out. Daniel climbed the steps and slowly made his way into the house. A television was blaring. Daniel didn't know where the sound was coming from, but he knew that he was listening to the final few minutes of the nine o'clock news, maybe the weather report. The hallway was dark. It took a few seconds for his eyes to adjust, and when he could see a little more clearly, he continued into the house. The living room was dimly lit by a small lamp, sitting on top of a side table. Hanging on the wall and taking up the majority of it was a large print of a man with a dark moustache. Lord Lucan. If they were separated, as the lady had suggested, she still held him in quite high regard. Maybe, Daniel thought, it was for the benefit of their children rather than her own. Their father's presence continually visible, even when he was absent. The room was empty, and so Daniel slowly closed the door and backed out into the hallway. He hadn't noticed, but his breathing was so shallow that it had altered his hue. He thought about calling out. Maybe the warning would be enough to frighten the Lord, make him see reason, or maybe the sound of another man's voice would terrify him further, causing him to do something he might not have done otherwise. Daniel remained silent tiptoeing through the hallway, his back to the front door, and subsequently the woman who had summoned him from his nice, quiet pint. Then he saw it. At the corner of the hallway, partially visible in the gloom, lay the body of a woman. The nanny? Daniel felt his stomach lurch, rise up into his throat. He had never seen a dead person before and it was much worse than he had anticipated. Thick, dark blood painted the woman's legs, the only part of her that he could see. He wasn't sure whether walking further would be a good idea. He felt sick enough without exacerbating things. Something inside him, however, drove him on, and he approached the body with caution. When he saw the rest of it, it was difficult to think of the thing in front of him as a person. He couldn't control himself and vomited. The nanny had been completely obliterated. 
Her stomach was stretched wide open, and her entrails were scattered haphazardly across the hall. Daniel tried not to look at the top half of her body, which seemed to be completely separate to the rest of her, as if someone had taken a chainsaw to the poor girl. He wiped the drool from his lips, told himself to get it together, and stepped over the body so that he could begin to climb the stairs. If the children were still up there, he wasn't sure he wanted to be the one to discover them. He would suffer tremendous nightmares already, probably until the day he died without witnessing that kind of depravity inflicted upon children. He reached the end of the first flight of stairs. The television was louder, clearer, leading Daniel to believe that he was on the same floor as it. He could see a flickering light at the end of the hallway, almost certainly the result of a constantly changing television picture. He made his way towards it, being careful not to disturb any of the paintings and pictures hanging on the wall. There were photographs of children, framed paintings, signed by Francis and dated 1973, of happier times in a multitude of colours. Daniel felt sorry for the children, such innocence, such a shame. He prayed they were still alive, but knew that what he had seen downstairs was the perpetration of a madman. "'someone completely lacking in morality. "'If the Lord was crazy enough to do that to another person, "'he was capable of anything. "'Suddenly, at the end of the hallway, "'from the door where the flickering light emanated, "'a small figure appeared. "'A girl, though it was difficult to tell "'in the semi-darkness of the hallway, "'now stood facing him. "'She must have been nine, ten at the most.' and Daniel couldn't recall the names of the children apart from the one who had painted the pictures that hung on the wall next to him. Francis, he said, extending a placating hand to show that he was unarmed. The girl grunted, though Daniel wasn't sure if it was in acknowledgement of her name or through fear. I need you to come with me downstairs. Your mother is waiting for you outside. He didn't want to tell her any more than that, he didn't feel like it was his place. The girl began to shuffle towards him, shamble even. As she neared, Daniel could see through the darkness that she was injured. The side of her face was bleeding, shining, and she looked confused as if concussion had caused her to lose her senses. Daniel dropped to his knee, ready to receive the girl, scoop her up, and carry her down to safety. He didn't get the chance, though. As the girl's gait quickened and she rushed towards him, snapping at the air in front of her face like a wild animal. It was only when she was a foot away that Daniel could see that her face wasn't just bleeding. Most of her right cheek was missing. Her teeth were visible through the hole. She crashed into him, screeching wildly, flailing with arms that had yet to develop properly. Daniel heaved as the stench of her putrid breath reached his nostrils. It was as if something had crawled up inside the little girl and died. She was clumsy, too, and Daniel managed to prise her tiny hands away from his neck quite easily. She squealed, and Daniel attempted to calm the girl, tell her that everything was going to be okay, that he was here to help. She snapped at his face, her teeth dripping with a vile, dark liquid that wasn't blood or drool. Daniel scrambled to his feet and did something that he regretted almost instantly. 
he kicked the girl in the head. What he expected was for her to fall back, perhaps lie unconscious for a while, but her neck snapped backwards with an audible click. After a second of writhing around on the hallway carpet, gargling viscous fluid, her head peeled completely off and rolled across the floor. Daniel wanted to scream now. He couldn't believe what had just happened. He had meant to help the girl, calm her down, take her to safety, and yet he had removed her head from her body. It came away so easy, he thought. The human body was not supposed to be so fragile. One kick should not have been enough to completely separate the child's head from its shoulders. That was insane. He didn't have time to worry about what he had done, as a large figure appeared at the end of the hallway. Daniel felt a scream catch in his throat. This was turning into some sort of nightmare. A man, the man whose picture hung proudly in the living room, was coming towards him. Growling, slavering, his maws wide open, revealing a deathly snarl. His moustache was no longer superlative, as it had been in the picture. Blood dripped from it in long, thin strings. Please, Daniel said, I didn't mean to hurt her. I was just trying to calm her down. He didn't know why he was trying to explain himself to this man, this murderer. Francis had already been attacked. By him? Daniel had merely done the beast a favour. Lucan came forward, a shambling mess, scraping along the wall and removing some of the framed pictures from their hooks. Daniel didn't know whether he was capable of running away, but he knew that this man was taller than him and clearly insane. He had read somewhere that mental people had no restraints, that their strength was unparalleled, and that they were capable of tearing a man's arm from its socket, should they wish to. This man, Lucan, was clearly mental. The police are on their way! Daniel bellowed, hoping his threat was enough to perturb the maniac. Lucan simply growled, barked at the air in front of his face like a wild animal, and lunged towards Daniel, who stepped back, almost losing his footing. Something grabbed his shoulder, and it was all Daniel could do not to screech in horror. He turned to find Lady Lucan staring at her husband, or the man that used to be her husband, with unmitigated horror. She cried. What have you done? She stared down at the body in the middle of the hall, and for a few seconds it didn't register what she was looking at. When it did, a moment later she became hysterical, a babbling mess of a woman. Daniel didn't know which was worse, having the inconsolable woman behind him or the raving lunatic in front of him, still shambling implacably towards him. He pushed Lady Lucan back down the stairs. As they reached the end of the hall, Daniel felt something scrape the length of his back and turned to find Lucan's face a few inches away from his own. Lady Lucan was tumbling down the stairs, actually tumbling. The fright of what was happening had rendered her paralyzed. She would have still been standing in the hallway had it not been for Daniel's shoves. Warm blood poured down Daniel's back from the Lord's scratch. 
He felt teeth pierce his skin, tear at the flesh of his neck, and he grimaced in agony as the meat came away. Lucan, the son of a bitch, was chewing it up as if it was the best goddamn venison he had ever tasted. Daniel punched out, but his strength had left his body, and he slapped Lucan across the temple with barely enough power to stop him from chewing. He kicked upwards, caught Lucan just below the jaw, and the man, creature, tumbled backwards and landed on the headless body of his daughter. Downstairs, Lady Lucan was sobbing, crawling for the door and the approaching sirens. Upstairs, Daniel was wondering just how bad his wounds were and whether he would have to get a tetanus jab as a result of being raked and bitten. At his feet, Lucan struggled to stand. His eyes were empty, as if the soul of the man was no longer there, if it had ever been there to begin with. He was emotionless, completely indifferent, as he used his daughter's savaged, prone body to climb back up. Daniel knew that there was little he could do for the Lord, that he would keep coming until one or both of them were dead. He turned, and with his hand compressing the tear on his neck to limit the blood loss, made his way into the first room off the landing. It was dark, but he could see just enough as a result of the moonlight coming from the north window. His fingers were sticky from the blood, and he felt like he was about to collapse at any moment. But he wasn't going to, not if he could help it. There was a bed in the centre of the room, though it was made up, as if it was only used on special occasions, perhaps if a guest came to stay. Daniel threw himself over it towards the large oak wardrobe pushed up against the far wall. If there was a weapon, it would be in there. He pulled the heavy wooden doors open and dropped to his knees. Lucan was already in the room. Daniel could hear him and smell him. It was the stench of death a putrid stink that was almost as terrifying as the man carrying it. Daniel didn't turn. He pulled items out, a steel coat hanger, a pair of jewel-encrusted shoes, a velvet photograph album that might have contained pictures of the man that was now trying to kill him. Kill everyone. Then he saw it, leaning against the back of the wardrobe, a single golf club. Daniel didn't play golf, and he had no clue whether it was a putter, a driver, or a fucking wedge. What he did know, though, was that it was heavy and would knock the bastard's head off. He grabbed it and spun around. Lucan was on the other side of the bed, stumbling forward, bouncing off the mattress, forward again. It was as if he didn't know how to get around the bed, as if his common sense had been taken away and replaced with idiocy. Daniel wasn't complaining for it gave him the chance he needed. Daniel knew he was running out of time, that the Lord was only seconds away from scratching at him. He lifted the golf club high into the air and brought it straight down onto the back of the Lord's head. He had intended to knock the man out, but the club went straight through and out the front of Lucan's face. There was an audible squelch as Daniel inadvertently twisted the club and Lucan dropped to the duvet, twitching sporadically, gargling uncontrollably. Daniel released the club and took a tentative step back. Minutes must have passed, but it felt like hours. 
Daniel couldn't take his eyes off the former lord as he died right there on the bed in what Daniel had ultimately decided was the spare room. He eventually managed to move, sidestepping the bed and the motionless corpse. Making his way steadily down the stairs, he listened to the sounds of car doors slamming, of police sirens shutting down, and of Lady Lucan hysterically trying to explain what was happening inside her house. Police rushed in through the wide-open front door. One of them was armed and levelled the handgun at Daniel, who was struggling with the final few stairs. His back was a burning pool of fire, and he could feel each scratch pounding, throbbing. Daniel somehow managed to put his hands up as the policeman yelled something incoherent. It might have been freeze, but as far as Daniel was concerned, it could have been anything. The steady, hush thump of blood in his ears was louder even than the approaching sirens out front. The policeman helped him out through the door to 47 Lower Belgrave Street and listened to his mumblings until an ambulance arrived. Off to his left, Daniel heard Lady Lucan screaming as she was informed of what the policeman had discovered upstairs in her house. The bodies of three children, one without a head, two that had been partially devoured, and the body of her ex-husband, the murderous son of a bitch now lying on a bed with a nine-iron wedged firmly in his skull. The nanny, Sandra Rivet, was found in several pieces just outside the basement door. Of course, the police didn't tell Lady Lucan this in as much detail, but Daniel had a very good idea that it was a more watered-down version of events. The ambulance arrived, and Daniel was placed on a trolley. He didn't feel as if he needed to go to hospital. The burning sensation on his back had waned somewhat, and the gaping hole in his neck from Lord Lucan's bite was no longer spewing blood. He was aware of only two things as the paramedics wheeled him towards the back of the ambulance. The first was Lady Lucan's stairs. She appeared to be giving him surreptitious glances, as if he had somehow played a part in what had happened to her family, and was highly suspicious of his motives for helping. She was crazy, of course. The events of that night would haunt her for the rest of her life, and she would suffer tremendous nightmares as a result. The second thing Daniel noticed was his indifference. He no longer cared about the lady her children, or the fact that he had decapitated one of her daughters and driven a golf club through her ex-husband's head. All he knew was that he was becoming increasingly hungry. His belly was turning somersaults, and he felt as if his temperature had dropped a little. As the paramedics closed the ambulance doors, Daniel smiled. He knew that there would be food at the hospital, lots of glorious, meaty, fleshy food that would make everything instantly better. He fell asleep as the ambulance drifted ever closer to its destination. And he dreamed of carnage. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. That was Adam Millard's Lucan as read by Ron John. Ron John has written and published children's books, scripts, and screenplays for animation and live action musical lyrics, and libretti. He is a student of strange phenomenon, parapsychology, horror, and children's literature. You can see Ron John's videos and hear more of his work on the Spectre Collector blog. You can download his albums on the Spectre Collector Bandcamp site and check out Ron John's hymns to the cannibal blood cult, the Fungus Sanguinarius at the Fruits of Madness blog. Link to all three will be in the show notes. Thank you, Ron. Our second story of the night comes from a new face here at Tales to Terrify. Amir Skalunja was born and raised in Sarajevo, Bosnia, and Herzegovina, but he moved to the United States at the age of 14 in 2002. He lives in Buffalo, New York, where he graduated from university at Buffalo with a degree in history. He has only recently decided to begin publishing his short stories. His first story... Darkness appeared in Death Throes Publishing's anthology, Peripheral Distortions. His newest short story titled Fragments is currently available in issue 21 of Sanitarium magazine. Currently, he is in the process of finalizing his novel, as well as working on new short stories. Let's give a listen to Amir Skalunja's Darkness. Sergeant Jim Atwater sat across from Dr. Lichtenberger and smoked his Lucky Strike cigarette. He studied the Nazi scientist through the cloud of smoke, marveling in disgust at the man's sad, decomposing state. The man was bald and pale, his eyes sunken deep into his skull, his skin wrinkled and hung off his bones, as if all the life had been sucked out of him. Sergeant Atwater wondered how the man could still be alive, and at the same time, wondered what was keeping him alive. He had seen the Jews in concentration camps, all deathly thin, abused, and pathetic. 
just waiting for their lives to end and put a stop to the awful torture they had been subjected to. And he compared Dr. Lichtenberger to the way those poor souls looked. Well, he looked hell of a lot worse, Sergeant Jim Atwater had radioed to the HQ. Jim Atwater had been assigned with his team of six to extract Dr. Lichtenberger out of a mansion neatly tucked in the Bavarian forests due to the belief by the American government that the Nazis were dabbling in the occult research and paranormal phenomena. The mansion, which consisted of dozens of rooms, halls, and corridors, was used for a lot more than just entertaining foreign fascist dignitaries and holding lavish parties and galas. Deep in the core of the mansion, a lab stretched over an entire foundation. It was here where numerous experiments took place, experiments led by Dr. Lichtenberger himself, that aimed to reach into alternate dimensions and harness whatever force was available for the taking. It was just another reason why fascism was doomed to failure, Jim Atwater thought as he finished his cigarette and waved the smoke away from his face. You always stick your nose where it's not meant to go, Sergeant Atwater said. He got up from the soft plush armchair and walked over to the window. The snowstorm still raged outside. It had begun the moment Jim and his team set foot into the mansion, and it was showing no signs of letting up any time soon. Until it let up, they were stuck in the mansion. I'll tell you what, Doctor. He turned and faced the back of the man's head. If it weren't for your shit government, I'd be home right now. Yes, I'd be home with my wife getting ready for Christmas and whatnot. He went back to his chair, leaned back into it, and once again faced the ghastly abomination that was Dr. Erich von Lichtenberger. But no, I'm here dragging your sorry ass away from this godforsaken place. And for what? So you can show your mumbo-jumbo to some other bigwigs across the Great Blue? I'm as much of an idiot for taking on this mission. But hey, I'm here to do my job. And that's what I'm going to do. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. It won't let you leave, the doctor said. His voice was frail, weak, with certain gory rasp to it. Come again, Sergeant Atwater said, and turned his head and pointed at his ear indicating he could not hear the words that sounded so far away. The house, it won't let you leave. With all due respect, Doctor, I'm not asking it to let us leave. As soon as the storm lets up, we are on our way. You've seen what it can do. The Doctor now raised his head and looked at the soldier his eyes sunken so deep into his skull, Jim could barely see them. It can, and it will do a lot more than that. Sergeant Atwater didn't respond. He thought of Private Bale hanging himself in the attic shortly after arriving at the mansion. He was just a kid, barely twenty years old. He'd seen some gruesome stuff right at the very start of his service, and that was probably it. The kid couldn't handle it. 
Sergeant Atwater mourned the kid, but he wasn't going to blame his death on some supernatural force that the doctor claimed he had summoned from the other side. People died peacefully or violently, and there was nothing supernatural about it. There was no devil, no god. What god would let the entire world plunge into madness, into a killing frenzy? What god would let millions of people die just like that? Private Buchanan manned his position in the front hall of the mansion. The hall was lined with shiny bronze and brown checkered tile that reflected the elaborate, masterfully carved arches on each side of the spacious room. The room was so large that Private Buchanan could hear his thoughts echo in it. He didn't like it, being here by himself. There was something about the mansion itself that drove him mad inside. The mansion felt different, not like other houses he'd been in before. There was a rather disturbing aura about it that sent caution signals at him the very moment he laid his eyes on it. From the distance, the mansion looked like one of the grotesque gothic homes, usually the ones where vampires resided, the likes he had seen in illustrations in Bram Stoker's books. There were many words he could use to describe the structure. Morbid, dark, grotesque, evil. The last word sent shivers down his spine. And what else? It made the back of his eyes itch. It was an uncomfortable feeling that he could just not make go away, no matter how hard he had rubbed them. The itch was there to stay, it seemed, until it drove him to complete insanity. Private Buchanan was stationed in the hall with the radio and tasked with finding an ally signal. The problem with it was that there was no signal. There was only the very low humming of static. So low that his ears could barely pick up the sound. But it was there all right. Just enough to let him know that the radio was not dead. He shifted through channels back and forth. Spoke commands and mostly the words of pleas for help. Yet it was all in vain. After almost an hour of no responses from the other end of the wire, he decided to take a break. He stepped away from the radio and looked around the hall, stretching his stiff body. He heard his bones crack and heard them echo in this odd place. The hall was decorated with dozens of vases, paintings, sculptures, and antique weapons. In the northeast corner stood an armored knight, standing at over six feet tall, with a broadsword firmly held down into the floor. At any moment, he thought the statue could come to life, walk over to him, and slice him in half with its oversized sword. He feared that the more he looked at the statue, there was a greater chance it would in fact come to life. Yet he could not muster the strength to look away and could hear the soldier beneath the armor whisper the threats of death and eternal torture. He heard the evil words coming from the statue and the young private could not tell if they were only in his thoughts 
or if the statue did actually speak to him. He felt like he was being watched, though not just by the armored knight. Buchanan almost gasped for air as he finally broke his gaze and looked in a different direction. The statue never moved, never said a word. As he sat back down, he wiped the sweat off his forehead that formed out of nowhere. At that moment, the radio came to life, static becoming slightly louder, to the point he didn't have to strain his ears to hear it properly. And over the static came a voice, low and deep, a voice that he thought was in the room right beside him. He looked at the radio in utter horror and disbelief as the voice spoke the words, Death is the eternal bliss. Cold sweat washed over him as he yelled, Sarge! Sarge! Sergeant Atwater jerked out of the chair as the voice of Private Buchanan carried through the house. Not thinking twice about it, he ran out of the office room where he kept a watch on Dr. Lichtenberger, locking the door behind him. He ran down a short hallway until he came out onto a balcony, looking down on the Grand Hall where Private Buchanan was stationed. He made it down a flight of red carpeted stairs, ready to draw his weapon. What is it, Buchanan? You got a signal? I got something all right, Sarge, Buchanan said, and Atwater could see that the man was whiter than the snow that had kept them captive. You raised HQ? Not really, Sarge, but something, something spoke to me? What? Sergeant Atwater eased his hand off of his pistol and gave a deep sigh. Well, I've been trying to get in contact with anyone, just like you ordered, but there's there's nothing out there, Sarge. All I'm getting is a quiet hum of the radio. It's like the world has ended out there, and there's no one to pick up. So why'd you call me, then? Sergeant Atwater asked, clearly frustrated. Well, something spoke over the radio, sir, but... I don't think it was HQ, Buchanan said, and he was just beginning to regain his composure as his heart rate was slowly returning to normal. Well, what did whoever it was say? There was a moment of hesitation. Spit it out, for Christ's sake! Death is the eternal bliss. Private Buchanan said, and he almost shivered as the last words left his mouth and echoed softly. It felt as if the words hung in the air, refusing to leave their vicinity, intensifying the feeling of dread ever so present. Do you find me gullible, Buchanan? Sergeant Atwater asked as he squared his shoulders and crossed his arms at the small of his back. Not at all, sir. I'm just telling you what I heard. There was nothing there for hours, and all of a sudden... That thing comes over the radio and, well, to be honest, sir, I thought I was going to shit myself. Sergeant Atwater smiled and shook his head. I'm serious, Sarge. I've never heard a voice like that. So low, so deep and evil. 
A voice with a purpose, I'm telling you. You gotta believe me, Sarge. I think we've all had a rough couple of days, Buchanan. He patted the soldier on his back. I think this house, this storm, you know, everything is just getting to us. Sarge, just think about it. We haven't slept. We're exhausted. We haven't had a god-honest meal since we left camp. You know what I mean? Sergeant Atwater shot the man a reassuring look that appeared to at least alleviate some fear and pressure off of the private. He eased his shoulders and rubbed his face. I'm sorry, Sarge. Don't be sorry. We'll be out of here shortly. Sergeant Atwater reached into his pocket and produced a crumpled pack of cigarettes. There were only two left. He took one out and handed it to Private Buchanan. Buchanan took it greedily, his eyes lighting up in excitement. He sniffed it and exhaled violently in joy. He put it in his mouth, and Sergeant Atwater lit it. He inhaled deeply and gave a cough as if it had been his first one ever. He laughed. I'm gonna check up on the others. Let me know if you hear anything else. Sergeant Atwater began to walk away, but turned to add, uh, Preferably from HQ. He smiled and walked up the opposite pair of stairs into the east wing of the mansion. You got it, Sarge. Buchanan sat back into the chair and turned the radio volume up. There was just a familiar, eerie, low hum. He leaned back into the chair and smoked the cigarette, inhaling and exhaling the smoke hungrily, like a baby sucking on mother's breast. The smoke slowly filled his lungs, and every subsequent attempt to blow it out was futile. He began to cough, though they were better described as violent spasms, fits of rage. He rolled out of the chair and dropped on all fours, coughing into the floor. The heat was unbearable. It felt as if he had been burning from the inside out. His intestines cooked as smoke began to ascend from his dry, darkening skin. Flailing his arms at nothing in particular, Private Buchanan tried to call out to Sarge again, but no voice escaped. Though there was no sound on the outside, agonizing screams of pain rang in his head, giving him the sensation that his skull may split open at any moment. Coughing slowly subsided to painful wheezing as Private Buchanan crawled on the floor. The color of his skin became ashen, cracking at certain places and showing the charred meat matter on the inside. He clutched at his face as his eyes began to melt and leak out of the sockets and onto the tiled floor. Moments passed and all movement subsided. The body on the floor became charred stiff, contorted in a ghastly form that only terror in the hollow sockets in the man's skull could speak of. The east wing of the mansion appeared to be reserved for a medical sector and research. The rooms were smaller, furnished with stretchers, beds, IV poles, and a half-dozen monitors that were all pretty much turned off at this time. Sergeant Atwater stationed Privates Bowman and Carlisle in this wing to watch over Corporal Hendricks, who had collapsed upon entering the mansion. 
His body shook on the floor. It looked as if he'd had a seizure. Though his physical exam upon enlisting showed him to be in an almost perfect physical form. He was placed in the last room of the medical wing and examined by Private Carlyle, who was a medic, though the young soldier could find nothing wrong with the man after a thorough examination. It's almost as if he's hibernating. He's in just a really deep sleep, Private Carlyle had said. There was a rather odd feeling about the entire wing. It looked deserted, almost never used, and yet it still felt occupied, as if there were some invisible bodies laying those empty beds. Invisible bodies? Those are called ghosts, Sergeant, and those don't exist. <laughs> Atwater heard himself say out loud and chuckled nervously. He reached the very last room where Bowman and Carlyle kept watch on the slumbering Corporal Hendricks. How's everything? he asked as he gave a soft knock on the wide open door. The two soldiers jumped up as if they were called to attention. He could tell they'd been dozing off, fighting really hard to stay awake, but losing that battle half the time. No change, sir, Carlyle said as he straightened his uniform. No change at all. Relax, Carlyle. No need for formalities right now. We're all tired. Sarge? Carlyle relaxed a little, and Atwater turned his attention to Private Bowman. He looked just as worn out as the rest of them. Perhaps even more so than others. How are you holding up, Bowman? To be honest with you, Sarge, really tired. I want to sleep, but I can't. Carlisle here tells me to get some shut-eye, and then he'll wake me up if anything happens. I try, and I almost get there, but then I wake up. It's true, Carlisle added. I tried it, too. No matter how tired we are, we just can't fall asleep. Exhaustion, Sergeant Atwater said. That's the best explanation I can come up with. That's probably it. Carlyle said and looked at Corporal Hendricks. Not sure about him, though. He seems to have no problem sleeping. His vital signs are all good, though. Perhaps Hendricks cracked under the insurmountable pressure and workload. Perhaps he wasn't as tough as he looked, though his physical appearance didn't have much to do with the horrors their psyches were subjected to. Yes, that was it, Jim Atwater thought. Even the toughest men can break. Hendricks was the shining example of it. He dove headfirst into all the gunfights, slept a very little, always yearned for action. Always upbeat and ready to joke and lift other spirits even in the darkest hours, he had finally succumbed to fear, exhaustion, stress, violence, and gore. Well, as long as his vitals are good, that's all that matters then, Sergeant Atwater said. He took out his pack of smokes and offered them to the soldiers. They each shook their heads. Don't think we should, Sarge, Carlyle said and motioned with his head at the sleeping corporal. You're probably right, Sergeant Atwater said. Here, save them for later. The men took the cigarettes and stashed them in their breast pockets. Thanks, Sarge. 
they said almost in unison. Take it easy here, boys. Let me know if anything changes. We are heading out as soon as this storm lets up. How's Dr. Creep? Bowman asked. Dead, but living. That's the best I can put it. Talks a bunch of nonsense. I don't think he's even aware of what he's saying. The guy gives me the creeps, Bowman said and shuddered. There's just something about him that doesn't sit right. <laughs> Got that right, Sergeant Atwater said and began to walk out into the hall. How will we move Corporal Hendricks? Carlyle asked. Sergeant Atwater thought about it for a second and looked at the stretchers. We could use those, he said. Bundle them up and carry them. But we'll cross that bridge when we get there. I'm going to go check on Jonas. Let me know if anything changes. I'll keep in touch. I'm just down the hall babysitting Dr. Lichtenberger. You got it, Sarge, Carlyle said. Sergeant Atwater could tell something was wrong, even before he reached for the door handle. He just stood there in the hall and looked at the door, debating whether or not he should go in. The West Wing, where Private Bukowski was located, was designated for office space that generally served for meetings and operations, such as drafting new war plans and designating new concentration camps to different areas. Crumpled sheets of documents littered the floors, and Jim Atwater was sure that all the important blueprints and correspondences were already long gone. There was something behind the door. Yeah, Rick Bukowski is behind the door, he thought, but knew what exactly he was thinking. Bukowski was behind the door, there was no doubt about it, but Sergeant Atwater could almost feel that something was there with him. All of a sudden, he felt an awful itching behind his eyes and in the back of his throat. His heart sped up as he rubbed his face with his sweaty palms, and a buzzing noise like that of a swarm of flies filled his ears. Though the sound was not just in his mind, it was behind the door. So many flies, and an awful stench too came from behind the door. Reluctantly, he reached for the handle and turned it, rather shakily. As the door creaked open, a horrible stench rushed at him and hit him like a brick wall. A stench so strong and nauseating, as if a hundred coffins had opened all at once and revealed their rotting contents. There, on the floor next to a shiny mahogany office desk, lay Private Rick Bukowski his veins slit, slowly draining him of life. A swarm of flies buzzed around the office, and Sergeant Atwater almost had to raise his voice to call out to his fellow soldier. Rick! he yelled and ran to the bleeding man. Rick, what the hell did you do? The flies buzzed and hovered around the two men. Who did this to you, Private? Sergeant Atwater demanded. Who did this to you? Did you do this? He reached for a table runner located on the desk and ripped it in half, wrapping each one of the man's wrists. The bloody knife lay on the floor a couple of feet away. It's the darkness, Sarge, 
Private Bukowski mumbled from his dreamlike state. What? It's everywhere, the man continued as his eyes rolled in his sockets, trying to focus on nothing in particular. It's everywhere, Sarge. It's in the air. It's in the blood. It's in our heads. His voice was meek, defeated. This is the only way, Sarge. The only way to escape the darkness. You're making no sense, soldier. Come on, on your feet. I'll help you. Carlisle can patch you up. Sergeant Atwater, although angry, was beginning to lose his sense of what was real and what wasn't. It all felt like a nightmare, and he was just waiting to wake from it. Yes, he would wake up, in a tent, with his rifle by his side. He closed his eyes hard and opened them back up, hoping he would find himself in a different place. Bukowski pushed him back softly with a bloody hand. Don't you understand? It's all fucked. It's in us. It's in all of us, Sarge. Just let the blood flow. It's the only way to escape it. We are not giving up, Bukowski. We are not. We are tired, hungry, that's all, Atwater pleaded. He'd seen some grotesque things in the line of duty, but this house messed with his head like nothing ever before. We just gotta wait for the storm to let up. They're gutted like pigs and roasted in eternal flames. The stink of evil rises and blots out the sun at dawn. The words trailed on and blended into each other until the things Private Bukowski was saying were just gibberish. It need to poke my eyes out. There's so much evil in them. It hurts so much. Yet the hellish gibberish actually scares Sergeant Atwater. Within a blink of an eye, Private Bukowski reached for the knife and stuck it into his neck. Dark matter, darker and thicker than blood, squirted like a water fountain. Like a scared crab, Sergeant Atwater pushed himself away from the bleeding private. He looked at the almost black liquid pour out of the unfortunate soldier. Is leaving me, Sarge. Isn't, isn't it beautiful? Bukowski said, gurgling, dark matter pouring from his mouth and over his chin, painting his uniform black. The matter was thick, almost jelly-like, unlike anything Sergeant Atwater had ever seen. However, the closest thing he could compare it to would be tar. When the bleeding subsided, Sergeant Atwater reluctantly approached the soldier and shakily brought his hand to the man's neck. He checked for a pulse, but there wasn't any. Lifeless eyes stared at him, speaking lures of evil, and he had to fight hard to look away, as if they had physical hold of him. Finally, he managed to close them. He walked over to the window and ripped the curtain off the rod and covered the dead body, said a prayer. 
From under the curtain came a deep voice, not that of Private Bukowski. Those cheap parlor tricks will not work here, mortal. The voice was angry, but then it chuckled and faded away. <laughs> Sergeant Atwater pulled out his pistol and shot the corpse. As the shots from the pistol rang through the mansion, so did the screams from the medical wing. Without a moment of hesitation, Sergeant Atwater ran. But the door between the office and the hall shut in front of him, preventing him from going in the direction of the screams. He rammed the door with his shoulder, sending sharp pain down his back and arm, and after three or four tries, he opted for kicking it open. Yet that proved to be in vain. The door was heavy, probably made out of a strong oak, and God only knew how many thick layers of it. His brute force made no impact on the strong barricade. He looked at his pistol, then aimed it and fired two shots at the knob, and the door swung open. Perhaps the evil presence didn't work against conventional weapons, he thought. Running down the hall, he heard noises, voices coming from all the rooms he passed, some screaming in agony, others mocking and laughing evil laughs. The room when Private Bowman and Carlyle watched over Corporal Hendricks was covered in blood. Though this too was not the regular red liquid, but the same dark jelly-like matter Sergeant Atwater had seen come out of Bukowski. There was a trail of it leading further down the hall. When he got to the end of it, the trail appeared to go beyond the door and further down the stairs into the basement labs. Following it all the way, Sergeant Atwater arrived to the main chamber where the strange machine was located. Dr. Lichtenberger said it was THE machine that connected the worlds, his life's work, his everything. He raised the gun and aimed it at Corporal Hendricks, who had Carlyle by his throat, suspended in the air. What could possibly have given such strength to a recently comatose soldier, Sergeant Adwater could not even imagine. Private Bowman was laying on the floor, at Hendricks' feet covered in blood, and his actually was blood, all red and untainted. Yes, that was the word, untainted. Bowman appeared to be stabbed all over, his face, torso, legs. His body was riddled with holes, blood poured out the man as if it were a sieve. Corporal Hendricks appeared to be rather normal, no physical damage done to him save for the blood-splattered uniform, which was not his own. His face was pale, though, eyes sunken in, but not to the point of those of Dr. Lichtenberger. I'm doing them a favor, Jim, Corporal Hendricks said. We both know it. I've just come to accept it. What's that supposed to mean? Sergeant Atwater said, not lowering his gun. Jim, look around you. Evil. Darkness. It's everywhere. I'm not going back. I'm not going back to sleep. No one is making you, Corporal. You're not well. 
you don't understand. The house won't let us leave. The sleep I was in? See, I wasn't asleep. I was... Well, I don't know where I was. It's a world like ours, but as if hell had reigned there for all eternity. The things I've seen, Jim... You wouldn't stop me from doing this. I'm helping these men. Bowman is already in a better place, far, far away from here. Corporal Hendricks' words were eerily reminiscent of those spoken by Dr. Lichtenberger himself. Sergeant Atwater didn't know what to believe anymore. We will get out of here, Roger. Look, let's leave right now. We'll leave right now and forget the crazed doctor and this whole place. We'll trudge through the snow if we have to. There was a moment of silence. Then, with a powerful squeeze, without an ounce of expression on his face, Corporal Hendricks finished choking Private Carlyle and let his drained body drop to the floor. Are you really that stupid, Jim? The house will not, and I emphasize not, let us leave. What's in us will follow us, no matter where we go. The darkness will follow us. The evil will never let us rest until we are all dead and gone. Get that through your thick skull. Sergeant Atwater looked at the two dead privates on the ground. They died in this godforsaken place, far away from home, and for what? He felt this was his failure, his wrongdoing. It was him that led the men to this evil place and got them killed. Got them to kill themselves and each other. Part of him wanted to cry, while the other part told him to end it all. To join the others and be done with it. There was nothing else left. No one to turn to. No one to endure this hellish night with. He thought of Private Buchanan in the Grand Hall. Was he still among the living? Most likely not, since he would already have been there. The sound carried well through the mansion, and Buchanan never responded to it. The things I've seen, Jim, no one should ever see. I saw death, and only death. I came upon a hill, and this hill was made of bones that cracked under my feet with every step I took. God, how many dead bodies that was! Millions? I saw a river of blood flow freely and violently beyond that hill that ended in a giant waterfall. Well, bloodfall in this case. And all through my journey, I heard screams of agony, pain, voices that beg for mercy. I heard voices pray to keep the darkness at bay, but it's all in vain. They opened this goddamn portal and wherever it went, it opened the door to something terrible that spilled into this mansion. And it won't stop. Any response to Hendrick's words was useless. Sergeant Atwater slowly started to believe what the man was saying, and began to accept the situation they were all in. Perhaps there was, in fact, something out there, some higher, evil force, that had unleashed the havoc upon his men. And the god they all prayed to was either deaf and blind, or simply indifferent to the atrocities. Come to terms with it, Jim. 
We are doomed. There is no escape but through death. Death is the eternal bliss. The two men stood across from each other, silent. What was said was said. The air tasted stale, old, evil. Without further discussion and hesitation, Sergeant Atwater squeezed the trigger. The bullet went clean through Roger Hendrick's head and hit the wall behind him. The man fell between the two privates, and immediately after the shot, Sergeant Atwater could see the gratefulness in the man's eyes. He walked back upstairs and back to the room where he watched over Dr. Lichtenberger. On the way, he passed through the Grand Hall and saw the still-smoking body of Private Buchanan. Dr. Lichtenberger still sat in the chair, hadn't moved an inch since Sergeant Adwater had left him. You should have believed me when I told you the house won't let you leave, the man said coldly, meekly. There are higher forces in play here, soldier. We are nothing but expendable pawns in its destructive wake. We are flesh and bone, and it all turns to ash. What did you bring over into our world with that goddamn machine? Sergeant Atwater asked and pointed the gun at the sickly man. He clenched his teeth in anger. A new world. A lot darker than ours, that brings about new beings that will reign over ours in darkness, and those that live will only become slaves to the will of the evil. There is no escaping it. He had heard enough. Sergeant Jim Atwater squeezed the trigger on his pistol. The bullet went through the doctor's head and the dark matter splattered the desk in the window behind him, and from his body came the same familiar, putrid stink of dozens of graves with rotting bodies. Dark black smoke spewed from his body and began to fill the room. Before the smoke could reach him, Jim Atwater put the gun to his temple and squeezed the trigger. There was nothing but darkness. What he saw next was the hill of bones. That was Amir Scalunja's Darkness, as read by Drew Sebastini. You haven't experienced true horror until you've weathered a winter in the bleak, frozen wastes of the Canadian prairies. And Drew has survived quite a few. He's been spinning tales since he was old enough to hold a pencil. Most often, Drew flexes his creative muscle as an advertising copywriter and creative director, and he hopes you won't hold that against him. But in his spare time, he moonlights as a voiceover artist for radio and video commercial work. Drew lives in Saskatoon, Canada, with his wife, son, and a menagerie of furry creatures. Drew, thank you, as always. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast, or wherever you found our podcast. 
Our show is produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. If you've enjoyed the show and any of the others in the District of Wonders, please think about taking out a monthly subscription over on Patreon. Any little amount helps just to keep the stories coming and the shows rolling on. We want to bring out the best stories out there and deliver them to you free. But we certainly need some help and support. Please think about popping over to Patreon. A little as two ninety nine a month would be such a great donation. Just want to say thank you so much for all your support over the years. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.